song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. This week, we are talking about the Golden State Warriors, which is your favorite basketball team. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the Bay Area and really, really got into the Warriors when I was in middle school. My whole middle school basketball team, our coaches would like somehow had some hookup on group tickets and would like take us. This was like the 97, 98 Warriors, like Spreewell and Muggsy Bogues and the Donald Boyle. So I really fell in love with the Warriors during the 97, 98 season, saw them through some hard times and, um, even more so than the San Francisco Giants, of whom I'm also a fan. They felt like a team that you could love, but you just knew they weren't going to win a championship. And now they've won three out of four. So yeah, they've blown my mind. For people who don't know, because I don't write that much about it, and I don't honestly talk that much about it, I am an enormous basketball fan. I actually significantly prefer basketball to wrestling. Like I am literally the type of person who will watch a a regular season Celtics game on the big TV and a pay-per-view on my iPad. I am that level of basketball fan. So I've been really just using this entire podcast as an excuse to get an episode where we can talk about basketball. <laughs> it's all been leading to this moment. <laughs> So yeah, uh, we wanted to start and we talked about this last week with our episode on the Four Horsemen about the idea because I think it's the important idea to understand about the modern iteration of the Warriors is that they're the biggest even more so I think than the early 2010 heat after the first season they are heels. They're just heels like i love them i love each individual player and i think specifically when we're talking about the dubs the the warriors this iteration of the warriors we're really talking going forward about steph draymond kevin durant and clay like that's i mean we might mention iguodala in passing but i i think when we talk about the core four there's a lot of parallels and it's not just like oh draymond green's a lot like telly blanchard there are a lot of parallels between this Warriors team, this Warriors roster, like we talked about last week, and the original formation of the Four Horsemen. Yeah, and I mean, they really have dominated the league, or at least the conversations about the league over the last, you know, four or five years in the same way that the Horsemen really dominated Crockett from, you know, the from like the 86 to, to, to 91 period. And I think the way that they came together is this mixture of it being professional wrestling and organically. Like for those who don't know, the Warriors drafted uh, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green. At the time, none of uh, Steph Curry was a, a major prospect, but had serious angle injuries people were worried about. It was also said that he was too small for the league. Yeah, he was too small for the league, and he was drafted seventh overall. He's uh, No one was surprised that he ended up being good. They were surprised he ended up being healthy. But Clay came out of not nowhere, but no one thought he was going to be the second best three-point shooter of all time. And Draymond Green was a second-round pick. Like, these were the definition of like a group of guys coming together and really gelling. And you saw that in the 73 win season, which I think is an important turn for them because the year before they were considered in 2015, they were considered, I don't want to say like a Cinderella team, but they were a team that had worked their way up to the point where they could win a championship and then did so and everybody was like, oh, that's that's cool. And then the next season they came in and they had a bit of a swagger. And for those who haven't seen it, uh, Draymond Green loves talking shit. Mm-hmm. Yes. You'll hear it in this little bit of what he did at the championship parade. Why people started to be like, oh, maybe the Warriors are kind of dicks. All right, so Draymond, Draymond, you are such a... Clay Thompson, uh, yeah. <laughs> Splash Brothers, yeah. <laughs> Cavaliers, nope. <laughs> We won, yeah. They suck, yeah. We here, yeah. They not, no. Thank you, Draymond. So yeah, what you see after that championship parade, which I do love that clip because it's just Draymond like going full heel. They start the season, the next season, without their, uh, I guess you would call them the J.J. Dillon and Steve Kerr. But they start off with 24 straight victories. And you kind of get the feeling, including based on how they won the previous year, that they had established themselves as like King Dicks of Shit Mountain, right? 
<laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, it's almost as though it was booked like a heel wrestling angle. It really is because you used the word Cinderella earlier to describe the first championship. I think the way the narrative was kind of crafted on TV uh, was really that almost they shouldn't have won that championship, that they were just a team that got crazy hot and shot shot a higher percentage than anybody really should be able to. And that was kind of just the story was like, well, they're really winning in this way that you shouldn't be able to win. And somehow they're just putting together a long enough streak of it. But like, and that's like a heel story. It's like, you know, the heel can only barely win and usually has to do so by cheating or doing something underhand or whatever. Even though you would say they were like a Cinderella because they weren't considered favorites, especially not at the beginning of the playoffs. It turned immediately from the Cinderella story into the heel story. And everybody sort of that off-season predicting, like, well, will they even be a contender next year? Like, I remember that was a story after that first championship. It's like, well, are the Warriors actually here to stay? (laughs) And then they won 24 straight games to start the season without their coach. Exactly. And once again, that's the heel coming out. Like, that's like, I'm visualizing, like, the grappler Len Denton. Like, that's them coming out. And every match for the first two months of the season, you know, uh, getting the other team woozy, tapping their boot three times on the mat to load it up and kicking them in the face with their loaded boot. Like, it really was a heel run. It's just like a wrestling story. It's almost incredible. And I don't know that those guys are wrestling fans but they certainly seemed to embrace the wrestling aspect of it like you played the clip of draymond green earlier you definitely have steph curry who's built himself like he and his brand are basically like a family man baby face but when he's part of the team he's a heel because like you said they're a heel faction and the fact that there's just too many of them they've got the numbers advantage just like the four horsemen it like makes him a bad guy but like rick flair he has this like individual transcendent brand that's kind of kept him a popular figure of throughout it all yeah and i, I don't want to I, I think it we're probably gonna end up it's going to at some point we're going to be like oh he's like blah the moment where steph became rick flair to me like in my heart was when he did this season when he hit the three and just did the one, two, three. It was the moment where, for me, his swagger met his ability. And it was just like, no, he's the he is the best in the way that Ric Flair was the best. And I think Kevin Durant, and anybody listened last week knows how much I love Arn Anderson, is very much the Arn Anderson of that group where like Ric Flair will give you the best match you've ever seen. But sometimes he's going to do too much Ric Flair shit and it's not going to be what it should be. Where Arn Anderson, every time that guy came into the ring, you knew you were getting a solid to great match. What's... For me specifically, for uh, the parallel between Arn and Kevin that works, is that kind of matter-of-fact swagger that they know what to do and how to beat you, and they're going to do exactly that. They're not going to try to get fancy. They're not. They're going to just try to hurt you. And that's what Kevin. That's what it's like watching a player like Kevin Durant, who kind of just scores six to eight points every single quarter and there's nothing you can do to stop him and that reminds me if you watch uh, there was an Arn Anderson match I was texting you about where Arn Anderson basically does goes across beats a guy across the ring whips him into the other rope across the ring basically chases him down the guy hits hard into the uh, to the turnbuckle stumbles and he immediately jumps on the guy to do like Greco-Roman wrestling. And it's just this fluid moment of just like, God, you're so good at this and you don't even have to really look like you're trying. I also like though that much like Kevin Durant and uh, Kevin Durant and Arn Anderson are both the guy who will show you the fist and then when you duck the fist, hit you with the DDT. Like I think we saw that from Kevin Durant in the playoffs this year where like early in the game, he would take shots from certain spots on the floor. And then late in the game, he would, he would do, he would do completely different stuff at various points in the game. Like it was almost like there were multiple miniature strategies within the game. And I thought that that was another way that he's kind of an Arn Anderson figure is that, you know, you don't necessarily believe that he's got the athleticism of this guy or the speed of that guy, or necessarily even the power of that guy, but he's got, you know, he's a, he's a nine out of 10 in everything. And, and 
someone who is also a very smart person, like a very smart decision maker in the game, in the ring. And, and what I think you see, and it, it reminds me with Tully, uh, that Draymond kind of is the factor for them that holds it all together and makes the entire system work. But he's also, and this is the important part, he is the one that is an actual heel. He is the one that is willing to do this shit, the dirty shit, not dirty, Dirty's the wrong word. I do not, outside of the dick punching, I don't think Draymond's a dirty player. The edgy, but he's an edgelord of a player. And that's the same thing for Tully. We talked about it last week. Tully is an actual heel. Yeah, Tully does not want you to like him. And he was always sort of an anchor for them because Arn is tough and cool. Flair is just cool as shit. Like one of the coolest people ever. ever. (laughs) Yeah. But but they, but yeah, Tully made sure that there was nothing redeemable about him. He was that kind of anchor that kept him there. What you hear a lot about someone like Draymond is, man, you hate him when he's on the other team, but you love him when he's on your team. And, and that's definitely how the Four Horsemen felt about Tully, is you do not want someone like Tully against you because he will do anything to beat you. And as Draymond would say, you ain't cut like that. <laughs> I've always thought that like Draymond, I I always used to criticize and and you knew me when Jason Kidd was still in the league. I always used to criticize Jason Kidd and his like 10, 10, 10, 11, 11, 11 triple doubles. But like Draymond Green can have a 9, 11, 7 game that somehow feels like he was the player that turned the game. Not necessarily the person who was scoring all the points, but he was the guy who would either make the critical pass or make the critical defensive play or actually get an offensive rebound at a crucial moment and stuff. Like he can, he can be someone who can not be exceptional in any statistical category, but you can still be like, man, that was the best guy there. Yeah. And what they, uh, what they used to refer to Scotty Pippen, they would say he was not the most important bull. He was the most instrumental bull. And I think that's what you get when you get Tully, a guy like Tully and a guy like Draymond, they are the ones that kind of make all of the music flow together. And then you have, and this one's a bit of a stretch, uh, you have Clay, who's just kind of this chill dude. He is the one that I think saves them from being irredeemably heels because he's such a lovable figure of a person and a great player, a great bowl, a two-way player at the same time. And I, I don't know if you could really say that was Ole Anderson, but I, I do think he he gave them at the very, he may not give them the toughness, but he gives, uh, Clay gives them the, the likability that makes them not just a team you hate, like I said. Yeah, 100%. I think what makes him likable uh, is that he seems the most human of all of them. After playing the Nets in Brooklyn on Sunday night, the Golden State Warriors players had an off day in New York on Monday. Steph Curry and Klay Thompson got some media time in. However, their appearances were strikingly different. While Steph stopped by The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon talking about his Under Armour sneakers and his family life with wife Aisha, Klay Thompson was spotted on the streets doing an interview with Fox 5. The news team on the ground was lucky enough to catch the NBA player and got him to talk about the very serious topic of scaffolding. Thompson talked about his approach to scaffolding and made his way around New York City. Thompson says he looks up curious but still quickly walks underneath. I usually observe if the, if the piping and stuff is new. Or if sometimes, you know, something looks like it's been there a while, I kind of try to avoid that. Like he has nights where like, once again, you look at the box score and you're like, man, that guy played a lot of minutes and was not super consequential in the game. And then there's other games where, you know, the, the, the other, like you have Curry and Durant really relying on him when one or both of them is having an off night. But he's a guy who, who I think part of his likability is tied up in that, yeah, he, he makes them human. He, he's like Barry Windham, right? When Barry Windham was in the horseman, he was, he was doing the claw and you knew, you know, that he was Blackjack Mulligan's son. So that obviously, you know, meant that he was tough and bad. But at the same time, you also knew that he was like babyface Barry Windham from Florida at the same time, you know? So, so I would say, I, I, I wouldn't give him Ole, but I would say maybe he's the Barry Windham. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great way to put it, uh, that he humanizes them in a very real way. Because here's the thing. We as human beings should totally like exceptional achievement, right? Like it seems like a thing we should be in favor of. And what the Warriors are doing, and I, I'm telling you, what they're doing is one of the true heights in the history of the sport. 
and what they're doing as a team is absolutely incredible. And yet people fucking hate them. Not in Oakland, which is something we'll get to later, but people don't like the Warriors and they don't, it's different to me as somebody who follows the sport very closely than the way that they felt about the Heatles, the LeBron James, Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade heat, because they feel as though, and I am actually interested in your perspective. What was it like having the team that you had, the 73 win team that lost to the, I guess you would call it in that context, baby face LeBron James, have Kevin Durant be like, I'm going to join you guys. Not as someone who's like, sweet, we're going to win two championships in the next two years, but as someone who had this really beautiful, organic, genuinely transcendently special team, and then you added an outsider that couldn't beat you in the first place. I mean, I think that free agency is free agency, and if there's a great player and you can afford them and they make sense on your team without displacing someone who's already a core player, you should sign them. <laughs> Just generally, like, that's what free agency is, right? And I always really admired Durant, like, when he was on the Thunder. Like, I thought that, once again, like, he was like a LeBron-esque player where he was so good that he made other players on his team overrated. And it, there were times where, like, it was it was as a fan, you would kind of feel for him in the way that, you know, you kind of like have felt like LeBron for LeBron at various points in his career where it's like, Jesus Christ, like, can't they do something for this guy? So I felt good for the Warriors because I thought it was a great free agent move. And I felt good for him that he was going somewhere where he wouldn't have, you know, an unfair weight on him. So given that, and I, I, I am definitely inclined to agree with you, not just from a, a free agent in general perspective, but specifically this Warriors team need the ability to pick up a guy. They made sacrifices because Harrison Barnes was a legitimate player on the championship team, um, and they got the guy they wanted. I have no problem with that. You may be a little biased being a Warriors fan. I think that might be a little fair. <laughs> he did give you two championships and two finals MVPs, uh, but... I, when I look at it from an outsider's perspective, though I'm a bit of a Dubs fan, to me, what it says is that people have a problem with success, as I mentioned earlier, success, but in a way that they didn't get to either see coming or didn't happen in a way that they liked or in the exact way that they liked. No, like I think if the Captain Jack Warriors had like won one or two championships, I think that that would have been like total babyface stuff. I think people would have loved it because that was a team that had actively gone from just being like horrifically bad. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> fringe playoffs to a bunch of people who couldn't get their shit together actually getting their shit together in the same place at the same time for a couple of weeks. You know, like... I think, I think that people wanted that Warriors story. They didn't want the super team. It, it's funny that we talk about like, oh, the concept of the baby face in wrestling. It's so hard to get over as a baby face. It's the kiss of death. In sports, people want the baby face story. People want the team that hasn't been good for a while, that has a great connection with the community, and the fans love them, and they get energy from the fans, just like we talk about baby faces getting energy from the fans. And that makes them better and just pushes them over the edge. And they, they win one championship, even though they don't really deserve it. Like the 2010 San Francisco Giants, right? That's like the baby face chasing the dream championship win that people want to see. People don't want to see the super team. The super team is the heel stable. And like you said, even though the Warriors drafted and developed three of those players, it, it, it's just the idea that adding by free agency, you know, intentionally building a quote unquote super team is like a heel move. You're assembling a stable. It's like Gary Hart came to the territory or, or, uh, I guess I'll use a, an MLW reference. Uh, you know, Colonel Robert Parker comes to your town and starts a new stud stable. People don't like that. People don't want those people to win. To me. And I, I don't want to, Again, I, I don't want to be talking about blog boys and haters, but to me, that is actual jealousy. It is a jealousy founded in the validation of the things you like. And this is something I talk about all the time and I've mentioned on the show. Validating the yourself through the things you like instead of the process of the things, liking the things that you like. And what you see is there's these people online on television there's a lot of the people on television seem to be bad mouthing the warriors because it's good for ratings but people on social media and, and a lot of journalists too have a tendency to frame the warriors as problematic 
which to me is insane. They're playing, yes, was the finals kind of boring this year? Absolutely. Do you know why it was boring? Because J- the Cavaliers weren't good enough. <laughs> but not just that. It's that J.R. Smith decided it would be a really good idea to dribble the ball out instead of trying to put it back up for a putback to win the game, which would have ch- completely changed the complexion. And then the Cavaliers died inside. That is not the Warriors' fault that they were unable to. And LeBron played about as well as you possibly could in that first game and gave it all he possibly could and then didn't have enough for the rest of the series. That is not the Warriors' fault. No. But they are blamed because they constructed a team. Yeah, absolutely. They built a team to get to the finals a number of times over a five-year span. Like, they built a team with a window in mind and said, we're going to try to get here at X number of times, and we're going to see where the chips fall. Like, that was just the way they built the team. And the fact that pretty much everybody at the East is terrible at building teams, number one, uh, like, that's not their fault. Sorry. Go Celtics. (laughs) Okay, that's fair. The Celtics are good. And and, and the the team where I regionally live... (laughs) But uh, I don't know. I think I think regionally, at least up here, I think people like their roster better a year and a half ago than they do now. But that could also just be New England racism. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is New England racism. Uh, no, I, I think that is totally correct that part of the problem for the Warriors is the closest thing they have to competition is a completely unlikable Rockets team who still... What the Rockets did is manifest a lot of the things that the people don't like about the Warriors. They didn't accentuate any of their positives. It was just, we are going to have to play you in a way that is going to crush your spirit and the spirit of everyone watching. Which is, again, not the Warriors' fault. No, because, I mean, Harden made the classic mistake that you don't make against the Warriors, which is you don't try to run their offense against them. Like, that's been true going back to the second Don Nelson run. But that's the one time the Warriors will absolutely crush you. Even when they were a terrible defensive team, the one time they won was when you tried to shoot with them. And, like, you just couldn't play as long as they could playing that style. And any time they've gotten involved in a long series with Harden, he has tried to play the Warrior offense to keep up with them. So it's like... He's the, uh, he's, I don't want to call him like a job guy, obviously. That's horrible. But uh, yeah, he's an MVP this season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, like, he's, but, 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 he's Sting. <laughs> exactly, right? Or, or I don't even know. I'm trying to think of just like a great example of, you know, someone who, you know, there was someone who was a great uh, wrestler in his own right, but that top guy always got him. Like any number of Hulk Hogan opponents, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, 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 you know, that, that he was, uh, he's, he's great in his own right, but when he runs up, in big moments against the Warriors specifically. AJ Styles against the uh, Kurt Angle in TNA. That's what I think of when I think of that. Is that a great performer who was completely unable to beat a very specific performer until essentially they decided that they were going to let him beat Kurt Angle. Like that is basically what happened is they built a storyline that he could not beat Kurt Angle because they wanted to build value, but that doesn't happen in real sports. That's the difference is that Harden may never get that payoff. And I think that's part of, if there is one legitimate reason to dislike the Warriors, is that they actually, and this is something similar to what happened with the Bulls, they cut off a lot of the more interesting storylines, which is again, not their fault, but it is actually like a legitimate reason to not want to see them succeed, I feel like. Oh, no, like, I'm still pissed that Stockton and Malone didn't get theirs. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I hear what you mean about cutting off the good storylines, 100%. But I guess, once again, it's like, our, if this is not pro wrestling, this is real competitive sport. And there's a burden on other teams to get better. Like, I, I just don't understand. I think that that's the one thing that just is not being said enough. Like, I get that there's only so much talent out there and the Warriors have those four guys, but like, I, you know, I I think of like the, the late nineties, early 2000s Yankees. It's like, did they sign every conceivable big money free agent? Yes. Did they have statistically an incredible offense? Yes. Did they win more championships than any other team during that span? 
yes. But day-to-day, other teams were competitive with them, like, throughout the long season. And nobody has gotten there with the Warriors. or Like, like you know what I mean? It just- but honestly, I mean, I joked about it before, but the Celtics are the only team that's played the consistently well over the past couple of seasons. And it's because they have constructed a team literally just to beat the Warriors. That's it. That's the whole purpose of their team is to beat the Warriors or to beat a team that plays exactly like the Warriors does without having to play, like you said, the way that the Warriors do. They brought in a college-style coach to run a college-style scheme that was going to stand up to a team like the Warriors, who's trying to pass and spread, basically playing a NBA variation of of fundamental college basketball. What people hope for with the Warriors is that they will eventually... That's the other thing that I think is going to bother people about looking back about the Warriors is that they probably will never get their comeuppance because the time it will take other people to develop will... You hear that, God? No comeuppance. <laughs> I think that's a more sense of <laughs> Sorry. That killed me. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they won't get a comeuppance. Now every time I hear a comeuppance, I'm going <laughs> to... <laughs> what I think you have there is something that you very rarely see in professional wrestling, not just because you can pick who's going to win or lose, but because performers can keep going into their mid to late 40s or 50s in some cases, you do eventually see people get their comeuppance. Maybe not in individual feuds, but they end up losing at a time that ends up making them making the next star or something like that. And I get the feeling that the Warriors are not going to have the opportunity to pass the original Kyrie LeBron. There's no Kyrie LeBron calves after this, I guess is what I'm saying. And I think ultimately, whether or not that's fair, I think not having one more big opponent to have is going to ultimately prevent them from being framed, whether or not it's true as better than say the nineties bulls, which personally I think they're way better. I hate the nineties bulls at me all you want. It was a different game. It's so hard to compare those two teams. I know, I know they're begging comparison now, but I, I'm really someone who as much as I love sports and as I, I love, I love context more. I, I think it's such a, it's such folly to compare eras, but I get that thousands of people make hundreds of thousands of dollars each to do that, <laughs> you know, but, but, but I, I just, yeah, I, I, but I think that you can't even compare this Warriors team to that Bulls team. The league is too different an environment on every level. The game is too different on every level. Oh, God, yeah. It's, yeah. We will not get into an esoteric discussion about how it's insane to think that the hand check rule still existing would prevent Kevin Durant from being able to score whenever the fuck he wanted. Like, <laughs> There's no illegal defense. You, there would be an illegal defense rule. You couldn't run zone against Kevin Durant. Good fucking luck. I'm not going to get into it. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to cut all that. It's fine. Uh, (laughs) I personally think it's difficult to compare errors. And even if you wanted to say relative to their era, it's not. I think that the best teams that the Bulls face, the best opponents the Bulls face, aren't as good as the best opponent that the Warriors have faced, uh, which is LeBron. LeBron is a transcendent, dusty roads level baby face, basically, in the context of especially the last two finals or the last three finals, including the one that came back 3-1. Given that they have this structured team that lends itself to being heels and they have an organizational structure that kind of lends itself to being heels, do you think it is possible for the Warriors at some point to, for lack of a better term, turn babyface? Or do you think they're just going to be this like really well-respected but ultimately like sports-hated historically great team. I think that any one of those individual core players, except maybe Green, I think maybe Green, like you said, is the Tully Blanchard, is just the career heel who really ties it all together. I think that any one of those those other three core guys could go somewhere else 
or could stay in Golden State after the others had gone elsewhere and, you know, really kind of resurrect their their career as someone who was, you know, a try-hard guy, just trying to make it work in the later stages of his career. You know, once again, just a, a babyface narrative that people like. You could definitely construct that about Thompson later in his career, Curry later in his career, certainly Durant later in his career. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Doing old man shit at the 18 feet out, just just jumpers, constant old man jumpers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So so I, I think that any one of them individually could could spin off into, you know what I mean, into being respected and loved and seen as a, a great competitor and a tremendous Christian athlete. I am actually interested in the idea that there will come a team that the Warriors will end up beating maybe two, three years, if they can keep the team together, the core four, I guess you would call it together, where they may able be able to develop an opponent or have an opponent develop in response to them, like the Celtics, or honestly like a fully healthy Rockets team who really challenge our ideas of what the Warriors are in ways that illuminate what has made them great so far. Because if you love it, and I think this is an important, the, maybe the most important parallel to the Four Horsemen is that if you love, if you genuinely love basketball in the way that we do, or if you genuinely love wrestling in the way that we do, you have to kind of appreciate this team the way that you have to appreciate the Four Horsemen. They are an integral part to our future understanding of the sport they're in and the culture that created them. Yeah, I definitely couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that people are going to talk about this team like we talked about the late 20s Yankees. You know what I mean? It's going to be a team that in 100 years people are writing books about, like trying to figure out how the hell they were so good and, you know, what what we can learn from them historically. I think they'll be written about beyond sport, transcendent of sport in the way that those late 20s Yankees are. Yeah, and with and for me, the, the, the parallel, because we were talking about um, off-mic, Steph Curry is the Babe Ruth of professional basketball in terms of threes. He beat his own three-point record in the year that they went 73-9 and by 116. He was both the first man to ever hit 300 and 400 three-pointers in, in a season. And he did so in the same season. So, like, that is a very uh, – sounds like an incredibly stupid thing. That is a very true statement you said, that they have transcended in a way that I don't even think the – I think Jordan did, but I don't think the Bulls did. And I, I think that's – like, we often make comparisons to things. I think in terms of uh, a perfect parallel, the Four Horsemen – in particular, the original, uh, the the organization of the Four Horsemen and this Warriors team is kind of like a perfect match because of all of the things, all of the different parts of them. And I think what's especially interesting about the Warriors and the way that the Horsemen were is the Horsemen could not have come to exist in the WWE. We talked about this last week. That shit would have never fucking happened. They would have never created a stable like that. Not just because they were a babyface territory, but it would have murdered Hulk Hogan. It would have murdered, with their bare hands, the Golden Goose. But I think in that way, the Warriors could have only really existed in a place like Oakland and the Bay Area in general. But specifically where their stadium is, to me, is a really, now, the Oracle Arena, is a really important part of the development of that franchise into what they are now. I mean, I, I grew up in the Bay Area, and um, I, I am a San Francisco Giants fan ever since I ever, really starting in like uh, 99, 2000, I would say. But when I was young, I grew up going to Oakland A's games because they were much cheaper. <laughs> so uh, I, I knew the complex there well. When I see it on TV now, it blows my mind how much they've niced up the Oracle Arena. I, mean, I, haven't, I haven't been there in 10 years. And I mean, when I was there... Yeah, we, it was you and I, right? It was the last time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the last time I was there. Like I said, I was there a lot in like middle school, like 97 through 2000. And then I went there with you and yeah, like maybe that was like January of 2007 or February of 2007. It would have been that we went to that game. Yeah. 
uh, the Warriors versus a Kevin Loveless Timberwolves team. And Anthony Randolph was the best player in the Warriors. So the idea that they are three out of four time champion for both of us is mind blowing. Even though you used to kick my ass all the time in NBA Live with the uh, the We Believe Warriors. <laughs> oh yeah, catch and shoot. Everybody on that team, you just catch the ball, you start holding down square, you release. Kalena Azabuki, fuck that guy. Fuck oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta take the hoop with him in the in that game. In NBA Live, whatever the hell year that would have been, 07, 08. Andres Biedrinch, fucking double-double machine in that game. Troy Murphy-esque. <laughs> Except the thing with Andres Biedrins was that if you fouled him on a shot, there was no fucking chance he was making those free throws. Yeah, I remember whatever the first year they put the thing where, like, the controller would vibrate on, and on important <laughs> free throws. I remember, like... I, I thought that, like, I was having a stroke the first time I went to the line. The controller was, like, making my whole body just quiver. Oh, God. But I, I think our enjoyment of those Warriors team kind of speaks to... And we when we went to the game, it was pretty filled. That was a pretty filled stadium. I mean, it wasn't 100% capacity, but it had to have been in the high 90s, the mid-90s. It was a lot of people there for eight... I got Guys, people... People listening, I want you to understand how completely fucking meaningless this game was. This is a game I would not have watched on League Pass if I was had it at the time. Like, this was a meaningless game, and there were fans everywhere. And they were chanting, and they were super fucking hyped not to be at a basketball game, but to be at a Warriors basketball game. And, and they were in it in the fourth. I think they ultimately lost by, like, three or four. It was one of those games where, like, the last two minutes of the game were fucking, like, 15 minutes. It was just brutal, bad, two bad teams. You know, one desperately trying to hang on in spite of their total ineptitude, and one desperately trying to fight back in in spite of their ineptitude and the other team's ineptitude. And I think they wound up losing by three or four, but like people were there till the end. And if they had found a way to come back, people would have lost their shit. Like if they had won, I would have said, okay, we got to run to the car right now because there were, you know, 12, whatever many thousand other people who, if they had won at the last second, were going to freak out in there for 10 minutes and we could have snuck out quick. <laughs> yeah. And like you said, in a totally meaningless game. To like the one of the most meaningless games I can ever remember even hearing about. And it was so much fun. And I think that begot this Warriors team in a bunch of different ways, not just the, that they developed the We Believe team and then the We Believe team became and then the blah, 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 so on and so forth. That audience was going to allow this team to grow. What you see is that they had just the right combination. And this is something you see in places like New York, actually, too, where they have both the blue-collar fans that are loyal to the team because their lives suck and they want to have something to go and watch at the end of the day, and they have... Shot. I mean, that's what it was like for me. Like when I was when I was broke and working terrible jobs, I would come home and I'd watch Celtics games, and it was a moment for me to escape. And I think the Warriors teams, like you saw a lot. I remember distinctly we were with uh, we were sitting next to a grandpa who had brought like his grandson and a couple of his grandson's friends, and it was that it was that type of community that came to the game. It was people trying to like enjoy the moments they could have with this team not necessarily the warriors or organization writ large but the actual individual players on the team they loved the warriors not the golden state warriors franchise yeah i definitely think that's true and i mean i like i said i grew up in the bay area uh primarily you know I, I was born in the late 80s so i grew up primarily in the 90s and in the 90s in the bay area the Bay Area is a tricky place for a lot of reasons, and it's only gotten trickier since I stopped living there about 10 years ago. You had the Bay Area, all of which was quote-unquote nice. And then there was like East Palo Alto and Oakland, which like everybody talked about in like hushed tones in the white suburbs. Like it, and, and you know, all the stats in the 90s when, you know, everybody was trying to be tough on crime. I think Oakland and EPA were, were both like the, the violent crime capital of the country or the murder capital of the country at one point. I know East Palo Alto was. But, but so those communities in the Bay Area were, even though they were living in one of the most like affluent and supposedly progressive parts of the country, uh, they were, you know, they, they were really marginalized. And the Warriors, I think, were something that even though 
Oakland had this stigma. I think the people of Oakland took great pride in the Warriors being there and the Warriors not being in San Francisco, you know, like they're going to be and like they once were, and not being down in San Jose or whatever. That really meant something to them, that the team was part of the community and was making an investment in Oakland just, just simply by being there. And the team on some level belonged to the people of Oakland. And then when you got into the team starting to get a little better during that second Don Nelson run, suddenly the fandom is really growing. You have more affluent people from the peninsula, from the city, from San Jose. You have those people starting to come to the games and that helped the team get better. They never would have won these championships and built this team if they hadn't grown the fan base. But it's kind of sad to see something gets so big and glitzy and profitable and what are they going to do they're going to move it back to san francisco so that they can make more money when it was such a vital part of that oakland community and really you know something something that that was special to people who elsewise within the bay area community were really marginalized and didn't have a much rel- relative to the, all the other people they saw around them. to be clear the bay area in terms of basketball is one of the most important, especially um, the history of, I would guess I would call it the black experience in basketball, highlighted by Bill Russell, who went to school in Oakland and then very famously led the University of San Francisco to, I believe, two national championships, which he honestly had no business doing. Yeah, they won in 90, uh, 1955 and 19, 1956. He is perhaps the most him or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar are perhaps the most important African-American basketball players in history. People who spoke out loudly about black issues while playing. And I think that legacy is really profound. It is an incredibly important part of the history of American basketball. So the idea that this is being gentrified and taken away is I don't want to say tragic because it's a sports team moving from one town to another, but it really, when you look at the history of things becoming gentrified, what you see is how that dynamic can really change the way that the sport itself becomes interpreted in the area. For instance, the WWE in New York, right? The WWE in New York had consistently pushed performers who were parts uh, who represented ethnic enclaves right and then they go national and they're like oh we're gonna just have an all-american boy not boy man be our flagship instead of an off-the-boat italian immigrant who survived the nazis in world war ii or a guy like pedro morales and it wasn't just hogan i'm not Bob Backlund was the, really the first person that that was this all-American boy. But as they got these national ambitions, they turned their back on the communities that helped develop them. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like you think about what did Eric Bischoff do the second that he took over WCW. He immediately diminished Ric Flair, who was the regional hero of Jim Crockett Promotions, which had become WCW. Like the second Bischoff gets there... You know, Flair is never really portrayed as strong or as dignified ever again. Eric Bischoff is very public and very notorious about trying to get all of the Southern aspects. And not just the, like, offensive stuff, like Confederate flags or whatever. I mean, literally, accents, everything. He saw the things that helped develop the community that that allowed WCW to be the type of company that had the roster it did. And went, fuck them. We don't give a shit. And you hope that the Warriors don't do that. And say what you will about um, the fact that, like, Joe, like, a, like fucks his trophy <laughs> or sleeps with his trophy. It's one of the two. Um, he seems like a person who isn't entirely tone deaf to the fact that they are actually gentrifying a, an entire fan base, essentially. I, I think they have done the best possible job of completely screwing over and whitewashing your audience. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. And by necessarily, I mean, it's an actively bad thing. But I guess my question for you, and and you left San Francisco about 10 years ago, but is it impossible to not become the place, to become identified with your place of origin, or not origin, but the context in which you find yourself? In other words, was 
possible for Jim Crockett promotions to ever become anything other than a regional promotion in reality for ECW to move outside of Philadelphia in that very specific context. Do you feel as though a team like the Warriors could have happened somewhere else or did it require a place very specifically like Oakland or like a, let's say like a New York, like that type of place that has the combination of all the things, has the patience, has the profound basketball legacy. Do you think it could have happened in any other place? Or do you think it was so that in these contexts, the place that the thing happens dictates so much of what happens going forward? I think that the We Believe Warriors were really of their time and place and something really special that was like more than just a basketball team and something that like, I know you always talk about how problematic it is for people who are fans to feel like they have ownership of things, but like people, I don't want to say they felt like they had ownership, but they felt like they were a part of something with that team. Um, I think that- I actually wrote about this. The We Believe the key word there was we. We are a community surrounding this team with our energy and propelling them forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was, that was a unique time and place, context-specific thing that was very Bay Area, you know, that combined, like you were saying earlier, like a blue-collar fan base in the community that had always been there. And like I was saying earlier, you know, starting to, to grow that fan base with some new people, they really did come together and create something special. That said, I think that this current Warriors team could probably happen somewhere else where they've been bad for a long time and gotten some good draft picks and grown a fan base and suddenly got a bunch more money. Like, I think this team could happen given that situation. But I think the We Believe team, that era, I think that was more unique historically and more more of a phenomenon, whereas this team is just a great era-defining team. We Believe was more of a specific, context-specific phenomenon. Daniel Bryan ass shit. Exactly. That's a great comparison. That's a fantastic comparison. I I love man. I love basketball, but the We Believe Warriors in particular are probably my favorite non. I love this Warriors team. I am basically a Warriors fan. I lied, guys. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Celtics fan. I will root for the Celtics over the Warriors in literally any game, including like hopscotch. But if the Warriors aren't playing the Celtics, I root for the Warriors. I think it would be the best way to describe it. But that We Believe team is special to me as not just a basketball fan, but somebody who saw you get to go through it. And I thought that was the coolest part for me. And that's always been an enjoyment actually for the San Francisco teams in general is to see that you get rewarded for, do you feel, I guess would be a question. Do you feel rewarded as somebody who had to go through the slog, not just the slog of the like mid aughts giants and warriors, but the like heartbreak of like those 2002 giants, like, do you see, do you feel the same investment in these teams that you have in your favorite performers or did they, your investment in these teams transcend any feelings or attachments you have to your favorite performers in wrestling? Huh? Um, well, I guess I'll start by saying that for me, like the 2010 giants, like, I think that's like my 2004 Red Sox or whatever, like that's, that's the team for me where like, I, yeah, exactly. Having been through 2002 and like, that was when I really started to, to get into Giants baseball was basically when they built the new stadium because that, or well, I shouldn't even say that. I would say the last couple of years at Candlestick, but definitely like, you know, uh, JT Snow, uh, you know, Barry Bonds, obviously, but like those teams with like Rich Aurelia and Jeff Kent and Kirk Reeder, like I watched all those teams build to something really special and then not get there when they really should have. And then watching those teams from like 03, you know, watching the Felipe Alou era Giants was just just awful, just so tough, so hard. But I think like I watched like 162 games in some of those seasons. Like I was so into baseball in late high school and early college. There was a point where I was one of those guys who, and this is before, I mean, there were, there were already stats for baseball on the internet, but it was not as huge a culture. And I, I was one of those guys who probably between 2004 and 2007 could tell you every guy who had had at least 20 at-bats in the majors that year. Yeah, it was ridiculous being friends with Dave in college in terms of baseball. You're just like, oh, you know everything. That's cool. <laughs> And, um, but, but, but like, so, so I lived through all that, like really loving baseball, but those, those Felipe Alou teams being pretty friggin' brutal to watch. 
Um, so like the 2010 Giants were. What was it? Brain dead Caribbeans hacking at slop nightly. That was the. Uh, yes, that was uh, Damon Bruce, I believe, is that talk shock jock sports talk guy's name. He got fired for saying he was talking specifically about Pedro Feliz, I believe, or most specifically. Pedro Poor a, uh, Pedro Feliz. He was no A. Eugenio Velez. <laughs> oh, no. He didn't have the speed of A. Eugenio Velez. Pedro Feliz, though, I mean, he's uh, he had, I think it was two or three years in a row where he had an on-base percentage of 290. <laughs> that is never drawing a walk. That's <laughs> so fucking bad. That's so yeah, bad. 290 for like three years in a row. But I will give him this. Better than Elgardo Alfonso ever played for the Giants. <laughs> God, those mid two thousands Giants teams were fucking terrible, and you used to beat my ass. Oh, and they spent so much money. They spent so much money on freaking Marquise Grissom and Moisés Salou, and like all of these guys. Like, yeah. I don't let me to laugh at your pain, but that shit's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember falling in love with like Mike Matheny, and then like career-ending brain injury, like halfway through his contract. Like, ugh, it was brutal. The the one, the one, uh, the one, the light there was uh, Omar Vizquel. Getting to see Omar Vizquel even in his late thirties, early forties, when he maybe lost two or three steps from where he was, you know, 10, 12 years earlier. He was just still so incredible to watch day to day, you know, even even towards the end of his career. He would to watch someone they always say with like Louis Aparicio, like some people look at his number. It's funny because I know that Louis Aparicio was specifically like Omar Vizquel's like hero growing up. But uh but like people always look at Louis Aparicio's numbers and they're like, oh my God, what the hell is that guy doing in the Hall of Fame? He must be friends with all the right people. And then anybody who actually saw him play day to day before like Nash, before it was so easy to see, you know, televised games and stuff. Like, but anybody who saw him play day to day were just like, no, 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 no. Like he was an incredible defensive shortstop. Yeah. Anybody that argues that Oma Vriskel isn't a fucking Hall of Famer, fuck you. I watched him play. He was a Hall of Fame defense. I don't know if you could justify him being that not great of a hitter, but defensively that dude, if Ozzie Smith is a fucking hall of famer, Omar Vizquel is a hall of famer. So I, I think, I think you answered the question, which is. <laughs> We've strayed pretty far here. I apologize. No, no, but you love real sports more than you love. Re- and so do I. And I think that's an important thing to understand is that like, we construct these realities around these players and these narratives around these players and they are more, even more profound to us than any wrestling thing that we could ever find. So I think when we talk about like people being pulled away from the thing they love or the thing they love being pulled away from them is I guess how I should put it. It is a much more profound thing because it gives you a sense of civic identity. Because I'll tell you what, and I think I think you'll agree, the Warriors are not heels in San Francisco in the Bay Area. They're not. They are b- beloved cultural figures. I am shocked every time I see people talking about them on Twitter like they're heels. Like, I just don't understand how it's that way to everybody else. Like, even to, to me, like, I don't live there anymore. But, like, I just completely reject any idea. Like, I, 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 I just never believe it. <laughs> I'm such a mark. <laughs> well, and yeah, and I think that's... Wrestling tries to, and I think this is, like the ways in which the golden state warriors explain wrestling, which is that like wrestling tries to recreate the feelings that sports create almost naturally. That that's the whole idea, right? I guess is to take the best aspects of sports and the best aspects of theater and, and kind of try to combine them. I mean, I guess that's really what wrestling is. And going forward, I think we're going to do other sports teams and other sports figures and stuff like that. But I think that's going to be a recurring theme is that no matter how hard wrestling tries, it will never quite make me as... No wrestler could ever make me as happy as when the Celtics won. You were there when the Celtics won in 2008. You saw how fucking happy I was. Like, there's no wrestler on earth. Bailey, I was at Bailey winning the NXT at TakeOver in Brooklyn. That is the closest I felt to watching on television the the Red Sox win their second championship in four years. Like th- that was not, I almost hit the ceiling in my dorm room. I jumped so high. Like, 
And I high-fived Andy when I was standing next to him when Bailey won. Like, that, the difference is profound to me. And, and I'm glad we had this episode to talk about how much more we love real sports. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I love pro wrestling. I love it differently than the way I love real sports, I guess. Yeah. Like, real sports are something that, like, when I watch that, like, I know from my own experiences at attempting it that, like, there's there's no part of that that, that I can wrap my head around or that my body can uh, <laughs> get in sync with. So like when I watch sports, I'm just like watching it to admire how good these people are. Getting back to what you said earlier, and uh, and and at the same time, like you said, it's a big civic thing. Like I don't live in the Bay Area anymore, but I really root for Bay Area sports teams. And in the summer, I stay up till 1.30 in the morning on nights when my wife is working to hear the end of the Giants game. Like they start at 10 out here. And, you know, I it, it really is a big part of my identity personally in, mm-hmm. in a way that wrestling isn't. And also, like I was saying earlier, sports are something that I just really enjoy because they, they're something that's just like so unattainable. But like the way wrestling is now, right, everybody's like think questioning the booking and talking about like, well, if I was doing it, blah, blah, blah. And like, I admit that like, I hate to like talk like this, uh, but like being a writer and watching wrestling, sometimes it's hard for me not to watch it that way, but I can freaking completely turn off the writer part of my brain when I watch sports. And that's what I love about sports that, like you said, only maybe two or three singular moments in wrestling ever have, have done for me. I remember like the first uh, Undertaker Michaels WrestleMania match where like Sim Snick Snooka doesn't catch Undertaker and he like almost dies and then finishes the match. Like I remember that being an incredible singular emotional moment. But like that's really the only one that I can think of. Whereas with sports, it's like like I was saying, like you got yeah the 2010 Giants and not just the championship, but like the, the every lead up to it and everything. It's just that sports sports is. When sports might only satisfy you every 50 or 100 years. You might only win that championship every 50, 80, 100 years, depending on how bad or cursed your team is. But when they get there, it is the most like incredible release. Like ask anybody who's like an Eagles fan this year and stuff, you know, like, like you're going to, they have to grease the poles or whatever. So, uh, but wow, I'm sorry. That was horrible. That was like the most dad, like dated several months ago reference. Um, but anyway, <laughs> Um, but, 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 but when, but when, when sports pays off, even if it takes 50 years, it's always worth it. Like you said, wrestling is always trying to simulate that payoff. And sometimes they do a pretty darn good job, but it isn't quite the same. No, and it, ne- it never will be, which it doesn't make it bad. They're just trying to do different things. They are trying to be entertaining. Sports are trying to change the way you feel about the possibilities of human achievement. Like <laughs> they're just different goals. Ain't nothing wrong with that. So I think we can end on that. Now that we've uh, it's got all of our Warriors talk out for at least this week, uh, did you have any thinky wrestling podcasts for us? I did. I have two specific recommendations. They're both pretty big podcasts, so it's not like they're like real deep cuts, so to speak. Um, but a couple of things that like some people might miss. Um, one of them would be the Talk is Jericho that dropped uh, Friday the, let's see, that would be Friday the 15th of June. Um uh, and what it is, is they did an 83 weeks, the Conrad Thompson, Eric Bischoff podcast the other week, talking about Jericho's time in WCW. And he uh, invited Conrad Thompson onto his podcast to rebut uh, Bischoff's narrative. But he literally brings Conrad on to host his show. So it's really interesting. He immediately turns things over to him. And it's just like one of the Conrad Thompson podcasts, the way he runs Jericho through quotes from his book and stuff from the Observer, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, really good. And I know a lot of people maybe don't download Talk is Jericho every week because there's times when he's like, you know, 70s British hard rock bass player that you never, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm generalizing. I know a lot of people like hard rock, so I should stop. But, uh, but, but, but I know people don't uh, download Talk is Jericho or necessarily follow it week to week, but but yeah, but I would check out this one where it's specifically him rebutting stuff that Eric Bischoff said last week on, on 83 Weeks. It's really interesting. And he he gives, clearly he believes that the WCW locker room was highly toxic. And uh, he makes a compelling argument. It, it's really, really interesting. I was listening to it immediately before we started recording this, actually. And in general, I I remember texting you the first time that I watched Conrad he is an exceptionally good host. 
And I, he really does a good job of asking just the right specific questions, which if you haven't been watching, this is my thinky wrestling podcast and it's the least like secretive thing. Check out something else to wrestle with on the WWE network. It is maybe the most interesting thing they're doing on the network right now. Absolutely. You know what's funny, Nick, is I actually, in spite of the fact that I never missed the audio podcast, I have not watched any of the WWE Network episodes yet. So based on your recommendation, I will go back and do that. Yeah, I highly recommend it. It's legitimately the one thing I actually wait for every week and was sincerely disappointed last week, or I should say two weeks ago, when they had to postpone the WWECW episode, which was probably the best one. If I had to recommend one to our audience, it would be the WWECW podcast, because I think it clearly shows that them at both of their bests, uh, both Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson. Do we get an uh, allow me this volley, sir? (laughs) <laughs> that's my favorite uh bruce pritchardism him doing him doing Heyman and saying, oh him. yeah, yeah. Smallies, he did that in the beginning of this most recent episode his Heyman impression is legitimately incredible it's just caricature enough that it's like even realer than the real yes. thing yeah it is the george bush dana carvey impression of podcast podcast wrestling podcasters doing impression impressions of other wrestlers <laughs> So my, my other recommendation, which I'll squeeze in really quick, is I don't have a time cue for you, but it's like the second half of the episode generally. Um, this is uh, the most recent uh, Jim Cornette experience, episode 236. Um, the first half of it is him talking politics and NRA and Twitter battles, so you can skip all of that. But um, the second half of the episode is so sticking interesting because he recently got uh, the, the, the day book, basically, like the journal for uh, the, the Black Panther, Jim Mitchell, who in the post-war years, in the late 40s, early 50s, um, was was one of, was a big uh, black territorial star. And, you know, someone who in that kind of like that Vern Gagne, Gorgeous George era, he was a big part of the territory down in, L- in LA where uh, Gorgeous George was. He also worked in Texas and stuff. But anyway, um, Cornette recently inherited or, or got from someone who found it, one of his books for, I think it's two years worth of stuff. And it's, it's just so freaking interesting where it's literally talking about like every day, like how much was he paying in room and board, you know, to stay in a rooming house in Boston in 1949. Like, I guess maybe to a lot of people that those aren't interesting details, but to me, I absolutely loved it. It's like hearing like what his expenses were, like what it, and you know, like what was his net what was his gross because one of the things that like blew my mind and i mean i myself am an, I'm an, I'm an independent contractor uh i'm a freelancer so i know what it's like to look like you're grossing a lot and then netting not nearly as much but it was just it was just incredible to, to to hear about just every aspect of you know what towns he was in and you know just the different territories it was like this this one he was doing the same towns you know on a five-day schedule whereas in this other territory he was working in all these sporadic different places so just a very detailed breakdown literally like day to day month to month of really the first black superstar of the televised wrestling era uh, Black Panther Jim Mitchell. No relation to the Sinister Minister Jim Mitchell. <laughs> no, that sounds um, that sounds incredible. That actually, out of uh, I've enjoyed all of your Thinking Wrestling podcast suggestions. That is actually to me probably the most interesting because it gives you a it's a slice of life and it's a wrestling thing. So you get that slice of life like living in someone's shoes kind of experience, but you also get to talk about wrestling. So it it seems like a perfect. Uh, situation. Did you have any uh, plugs for yourself? Oh yeah. Well, as always, follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. Uh, also, speaking of junk that Dave has written, uh, I would like to just plug one more time that MLW uh, column. I told you about it last episode before it had uh, truly been birthed into this world, uh, but now it is out there on the wrestling estate for you to check out. And um, it seems like people like it. Um, I'm not one to really. Uh, assess my own work uh, but 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 it seems like it's getting a good response which makes me happy because uh, I'm really digging what MLW is doing and uh, I think it's really really smart and interesting that they that they've gone the path they have you know with Strickland and Pentagon and I mean they have like MVP and Jake Hager but it's so great to see 
a new promotion starting and not instantly being like, okay, how can we get all these XWWE guys into title feuds to quote unquote legitimize everything, you know, and make sure that people know that, that this is good wrestling. So I, I, I recommend MLW generally, and I definitely would recommend you check out my uh, column about the MLW title on Wrestling Estate. Great. That sounds awesome. I have, like I said last week, I've already read it. It's very good. I, I loved it when I first read it. And I'm glad to see people have the same reaction I did. You can check me out at The Nixter. That is T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. That's on Twitter. You can check us out at howwrestlingexplains.podbean.com. You will be able to read on my website, Juice Make Sugar, my review of Sunday night's Money in the Bank pay-per-view, which is usually a pretty exciting pay-per-view and is usually one of my favorite pay-per-views to write a review about because pretty much every single year, at least one of the ladder matches is like a hair on fire, awesome time. So I, I, I'm very excited. Uh, definitely check that out for next week's episode because uh, we, we love to announce them. We will be doing the DDT, uh, Jake Roberts finisher. Um, and then next week after that, during that episode, we will be announcing next, the next how wrestling explains topic. So you can look forward to both of those, all of our written content. And um, I guess I don't have anything else to say. Do you have anything else to say, Dave? I have a good anecdote for you. If you've got 30 seconds. Oh, I absolutely do have 30 seconds. So I just last night uh, recorded a podcast for the wrestling estate, which uh, should be dropping sometime soon uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, through the uh, Team Left Jab radio, boxing radio network. But uh, I, I got a plug for this show in like two minutes into their podcast. So <laughs> I thought you would be proud of me. Everybody called me on it, but I didn't care. I was like, you know what? Everybody's listening right now. Once we dive too deep into the conversation, they might not stick around for the end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to freaking plug the shit out of uh, How Wrestling Explains as quickly as I can on my uh, on the podcast uh, that comes from my uh, major platform for my published wrestling writing. We got to do what we got to do. So yeah, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize. I'm going to say the Callahan it over here. And I, I'm, I'm glad to be dangerous to podcast with. Saginaw so much like Oakland. It ain't no love like that. The, the love like people from Oakland show you when you theirs, when you they own. It reminds me so much of home, man. It ain't no love like that. How were you guys? I never understand that. How were you guys able to fight through the struggle this year? <laughs> Stay together, figure out ways to win when you guys are injured, fight through the Rocket series. That was probably the toughest series for you. How, how'd you guys do it? Honestly, they want me. They they want a political answer, right? <laughs> Give it to them, bro. But, but the fact that it matters, we just, we just cut from a different cloth. Uh. You know, there's a lot of guys in this league. They saw we just come from a different club. That's real. That's all I really got from you. That's hey, real. That's as real as it gets. Off the bus, man. I love Drop the mic. We just ain't cut the same. I told one of them dudes from Cavs after the game, he tried to shake my hand. I said, Tristan, we ain't cut the same. <laughs> Here among the poor, despicable, oppressive, misinformed. Let me have for you to fight your